guess it would be redundant to introduce myself. <laughs> so uh, not being a fan of redundancies, we'll just say that uh, if you're here this morning and you are cautious about Jesus, are curious about Jesus, or fully committed to Jesus, this is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. As long as you don't have it all together, you're going to fit right in with the rest of us. Now, if you were here, uh, if you were not here last week, everything seems pretty normal. If you were here last week, you may be asking yourself, hey, wait a minute, didn't Michael Flake preach on this text last week? Or you may be saying, oh, it's so sad that the preaching team is out of sync. Or that the old guy just forgot. <laughs> well, none of those things are true. Well, maybe the third one a little bit. But none of those things are true. We are part of a, a movement in the city of Charlotte. There are almost 100 churches involved in this. And for last week, this week, and next week, we are focusing on the art of neighboring. And so last week, Michael preached on this passage. I'll preach on this passage this week. Holly will preach on the very same passage next week. And what you will get are three very different perspectives. And it's those different perspectives that are really important. So this week, I'm going to do uh, four things. First, we're going to look at the conversation partners in this passage. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the questions that they ask. The third thing that we're going to do is talk about how Jesus, at least in this passage, defines neighbor. And then finally, we're going to ask the question, what is Jesus calling us to do? Does that make sense? Four things. Last week, Michael had two points. This week, I have four that averages to three, which everybody knows a good sermon should have three points. So on average, we're going to be okay. All right? Well, let's, uh, let's just jump right in. First thing we're going to do is talk about the conversation partners. So part of the perspective that I bring is that, is that half of my adult life has been spent in full-time ministry. The other half has been spent in, uh, in business. And so uh, what we have here in this conversation partner uh, meeting is we're going to talk about subject matter experts, SMEs. If you're in business, you know what they are. They are people who run around, know very little about many things and a whole lot about some things. And so uh, SMEs, and that's really what Luke is talking about uh, here. An SME uh, called a, a rabbi uh, is somebody who knows a whole lot about the Old Testament. That was their whole Bible. Right? They didn't have to learn the New Testament uh, when this was written because there wasn't one. So the Old Testament. So these rabbis were subject matter experts in the Old Testament. There are two kinds of rabbis. The first type of rabbi is called a Torah teacher or a teacher of the law. Now, there were a lot of these rabbis uh, in Israel at the time. They were very well educated. These were smart people. Uh, they were required to teach the scriptures to the community, but to do so in the, in the narrowest possible sense. In other words, there's no going off on a tangent. 
If somebody asked a question, what does Scripture say? They would simply repeat what the Scriptures had said. They were responsible for teaching orthodox theology. Orthodox meaning right thinking. Uh, orthodox theology. Um, the rabbi that Jesus is in conversation with in this passage is a teacher of the law. So he's a subject matter expert in the Old Testament. And he's an excellent example of that kind of a rabbi. There's a second kind of rabbi that most people don't, haven't heard about. And, uh, and that's a rabbi who's called a shmikah. Now, mikah is the Hebrew word for authority. So shmikah is one who has been granted or given special authority. Jesus is this kind of a rabbi. He's allowed to not only know the scriptures and repeat the scriptures, but he's allowed to interpret the scriptures, if you will. He can teach outside the norm. Uh, Shmikah brought new teaching to the community of faith. Now, we know that Jesus was a Shmikah because Matthew, at the end of Jesus' longest uh, teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, at the end of that, this is how Matthew describes Jesus. When Jesus had finished these, thing, uh, these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So do you, do you see the distinction between these two types of rabbis? One, a teacher of the law. The other, one who teaches with a higher level of authority. So those are the two people who are having a conversation. Just, just two rabbis, you know, out on a Tuesday afternoon, and, uh, and they strike up this conversation. So what are the questions that they ask? Well, beginning in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At first glance, that may sound like a really strange question for somebody who is an expert in the law until you really think about it. Because just because he's an expert in the law doesn't mean that he knows how to inherit eternal life. The answer to, one, to how one inherits eternal life isn't found in the law. It's not in there. Rules and following rules will not get you there. The law was not given to save people. As a matter of fact, keeping it perfectly, even if you could, will not save you. God loves and saves and uses imperfect people primarily because that's all God has to work with. As long as you don't have it all together, you're going to fit right in. So the rabbi meeting with Jesus may be a subject matter expert, but because of the nature of his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's obvious to Jesus that he could use some coaching. So what do coaches do? Coaches ask good questions. That's what coaches do. So Jesus answers the rabbi's question with two questions for him to think about. The first one is, what is written in the law? If he's a really good teacher of the law, he should be able to answer that. And in fact, he does answer it, and it's the right answer. So good on him. This is, this is not a bad guy. This is a good rabbi. 
But the second question is, how do you read it is a little different. How do you read the law? I can kind of get in this guy's head, this other rabbi's head, and maybe he's saying something like, well, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Gee, maybe I should come up with a bumper sticker that says that. Ever seen those bumper stickers? God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. But you know, and I know, that while that approach is helpful much of the time, we also know that the Word of God and words in general are often open to interpretation. We here in the United States have experienced this in amazing ways in the past month. One letter from a whistleblower, one copy of a conversation, basically a template, a transcript of a phone call, both of those documents are being read by people in two different political parties and they are reaching diametrically opposed conclusions because of interpretation. Now, I know that Jesus can settle that. I'm also starting to think that only Jesus is going to be able to settle that. So Jesus often interprets God's word in new ways compared to the teacher of the law. Remember all those times when when Jesus was teaching and, and he would say, you've heard it said, but... I say to you, so you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit murder, but I say to you, if you hate your brother or sister, you are guilty of murder. So Jesus is always telling us what the law means. Maybe it's something that the other rabbis had forgotten, but maybe it's a new teaching because again, he has authority. The last thing that Jesus tells us about himself in the gospel of Matthew is that All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So when Jesus begins to interpret scripture for us, it probably behooves us to pay attention. This morning, at the close of the message, one of the things I'm going to ask you to do is to answer the question, how do you read it? How do you read it? I said a minute ago that the rabbi talking with Jesus was a good rabbi, and we know this because he answers Jesus' first question with the very same answer that Jesus uses when he's asked the question. In in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, they ask Jesus, how would you summarize the law? Here, Jesus asks him, what's in the law? And they give the very same answer. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's what I call a good answer. The rabbi got it right. The teacher of the law got it exactly right. If you can give the teacher, your teacher, the answer to their question in their very own words, chances are you're going to get graded pretty well on the exam. And that's what happens. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. 
So in other words, you get an A on the exam. But then he gives him some homework. We all love homework, right? The homework is do this and live. Do this and live. I want you to note that Jesus doesn't say that because you got the answer right, because you knew the answer, you're finished. He doesn't say, as long as you believe this, as long as you affirm this truth, you will live. The life of faith in Christ cannot be reduced to orthodoxy, to right belief. Orthodox belief is useless unless it results in right practice, orthopractice. Let's go back to Luke 10. It's clear from his response that the rabbi that Jesus was speaking to understood. Good on him again. He's doing great. He's got the right answers. But he also, in giving the answer, reminded himself that the word love in that text, in his very answer, was not a noun. It's a verb. Do you remember what we learned about verbs in elementary school? What did we learn about verbs? Anybody? It's an action word. That's right. Verb is an action word. Verb is something that you must do. And so love is something that has to be demonstrated. If we are to love the Lord our God, we have to demonstrate that. If we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, it must be demonstrated. And so with Jesus coaching this rabbi in, who is a teacher of the law, he gets it. He's required to take action, to love his neighbor as he loves himself. But that raises another question in his head. Verse 29, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is what we call a clarifying question. If, he, if the law tells him he's supposed to love his neighbor, he wants to know specifically who is my neighbor and then by inference, who is not. If I can identify who my neighbor is, then I also know who my neighbor is not. So I tried to put myself, I thought it was a great question. <laughs> I tried to put myself in his shoes and I tried to imagine what must have been running through his head I was really trying to imagine what would be running through my head. This guy is logical, if nothing else. But then I kind of pictured that thought bubble in the cartoons. You know, you get the big thought bubble up there. I can hear him saying to himself, because he would never say this out loud. It would be too embarrassing. I can hear him saying to himself, if I'm going to be required to love people, I want to know which ones. I mean, surely Jesus doesn't expect me to love everybody. Everybody can't be my neighbor. Some people are just downright unlovable, if you just, just between you and me and the fence post. So it can't be those people. Other people are beyond my sphere of influence or my, my sphere of control. Some people live beyond my horizon, beyond my reach. Who is my neighbor? What appears to be a very simple question turns out to be bigger 
and deeper than it first appears? The answer to the question actually depends on how you read it. Maybe it would help us if we use some contemporary definitions of the word neighbor, because we're kind of contemporary people. So next month is a big month in the history of the human race because Tom Hanks is going to play Mr. Rogers and that movie comes out next month. Now, if you are so young that you don't know who Mr. Rogers is, you need to go see this movie. If you remember Mr. Rogers, you will want to go see this movie and you should. Mr. Rogers had a neighborhood. And in his neighborhood, he had neighbors. Now, I live in a neighborhood. I happen to live in antiquity. I have neighbors. The people to my left uh, moved here about six months ago from Maine. It's Kevin and Deb. Deb is an interior decorator. Uh, he works for a manufacturing company. The people on our right, that's where Lisa lives. Lisa works at Pike Nursery. She takes care of our plants, makes sure they don't die when we're out of town. The people across the street, that's Corey and Lisa. It's a different Lisa. She doesn't live in two places. Different, different person, same name. And, uh, and she's a realtor, and he works for, for automobile dealerships. So maybe, maybe Jesus says that when we think about neighbor, we should think about uh, address. Who lives close to you? But that doesn't fly for this text. Because all three people who saw this person, probably this person didn't live next door to any of them. So if we can't use that, maybe we can use nationality or ethnicity. Maybe that's the answer. The rabbi that Jesus is talking with is a, is a good teacher of the law. And by the law, he knows that a neighbor is a fellow Israelite. And those are the people that he's going to give aid to. Those are the people he's going to help and protect and care for. But if a non-Israelite is in need, he has no obligation to help that person. But the text doesn't bear this out either. In fact, it argues against this definition of neighbor. So let's remember that Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. He is a shmikah and I think he defines neighbor differently than proximity of a person's house or social or economic status or race or nation or color or ethnicity or mailing address. So let's look at how Jesus seems to define neighbor. Who is my neighbor? At least in this conversation with this expert in the law, a neighbor in Jesus' eyes is one who is in need. One who is in need. And Jesus tells a story to make, the part, uh, make a point. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, verse 30. This, all of this is an answer to the question, who's my neighbor? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So I'm going to give you a little tidbit. It's a little aside, but it's no extra charge. Of the four gospel writers, Luke is the one who loves detail. 
He'll give names and places and dates, relationships. Luke loves detail. One of the interesting facts about this story in the Gospel of Luke is that it has seven characters, assuming that only two people beat the guy up. It has seven characters and we don't have a single name. And I've wondered, why is it that Luke didn't include more detail? Why is it that Luke didn't tell us exactly who these people were? And then it dawned on me, he didn't do it because Jesus didn't include that information. And he didn't include that information for a reason. Jesus isn't going to tell us if the man who was robbed was a Jew, a Gentile, a Roman, a pagan, or a Samaritan. He's simply identified as a man. He could have been anybody. But he had to be somebody. And all we really know is that he was a person in need. Jesus continues the story. He introduces three individuals who all see the man. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. These first two individuals share two things in common. First of all, they both saw him. They became aware of the need. And that's important because none of us are expected to address a need that we are unaware of. There are a lot of needs in the world that I don't, I don't have a clue about. It's the needs that I am aware of that Jesus wants us to be thinking about. But the second thing that they have in common is that they put distance between themselves and the one in need. They moved away from the individual who needed help. They went to the other side. And they avoided this person. Now, maybe they were like the white rabbit, right? Where uh, they were late, late for a very important date. That's a different story. But maybe they were just in a hurry. Maybe they just didn't want to get involved. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe their avoidance was motivated by religious, ethnic, or racial prejudice. The truth is... We don't know why they moved away from the need. So maybe that's telling us that the why isn't really the point of the story. Maybe the point is as simple as the fact that they saw an individual in need and they chose to do nothing. Maybe that's the whole point. So Jesus continues his story in verse 33. When a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to the inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So this third character in Jesus' story is identified as a Samaritan. He saw the man, but unlike the others, he went to him. He moved toward the need. We can call it pity. We can call it compassion. We can call it a shared sense of humanity, whatever. What sets him apart is that he sees the need and he moves toward the need and he does what he can 
to help. So after Jesus tells this story, he gives the uh, teacher of the law kind of a final exam. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? I tell you, this is a really good rabbi he's talking to. Good on him. He says, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So the rabbi understands. The question is, is he going to do anything with what he knows? And so what is it that Jesus is asking us to do? We are called by God, commissioned by God to love our neighbor. We are called to act. We are called to move toward the need, not for our sake, but for the sake of the one in need. 93 churches in Charlotte for three weeks are talking about this topic. There are conservatively 50,000 people in the city of Charlotte who will hear this message for three weeks in a row. If every one of those 50,000 people helped one person, think of the impact it would have on our community. You don't have to go help 50,000 people. You've got help. And that help is sitting right next to you. Helping someone in need, isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for us? We were in need of a Savior. And Jesus moved toward us. He saw the need. He moved toward us. We were like sheep without a shepherd. We were not half dead like this guy on the side of the road. Luke says they left him, he was half dead. We weren't half dead, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Go and do likewise as Jesus' invitation to follow him, to live like him, to be the body of Christ. It's the same point I think Jesus' half-brother James makes in his letter in the New Testament. James was the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. And I've started to wonder whether or not that entire book is really just a commentary on the story of the Good Samaritan. Here's what he says in part in his letter. He's writing to his congregation and he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that faith save them? That's another way to ask the question that the rabbi that Jesus is speaking to asked when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Can that faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? The same way faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith is a verb too, you know. I was in a hotel room in Tampa, Florida, 
at a business conference on September 11th, 2001. And I went to the first meeting of the day and people were standing around a television. And together, we watched the second plane hit. And we watched the towers fall that day. And we watched people running through the streets. And what caught my attention was that they were not all running in the same direction. The first responders were all running toward the need, not away from it. We are God's first responders. Knowing what to do isn't enough. We must run toward the need. And we must do whatever we can in order to give aid. And sometimes we do that firsthand. Sometimes we do that by supporting missionaries who are doing that on our behalf. Sometimes we do that by going on a short-term mission trip and we are serving for a brief amount of time to provide whatever it is that we can at the time. Go and do likewise. James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. It's a business book. But in it he says this, you know yourself mostly by your thoughts. Everyone else in the world knows you only by your actions. Jesus said they will know that you are my disciples because of the way that you love one another and that includes our neighbors so as we close this morning i want you to reflect on four questions the first one is how has jesus met your needs the second one what needs do you see that you could meet the third how might you be a first responder and finally, what might be holding you back? Let's take a few minutes and let those questions have their way with us as we go before the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you saw our need and you ran to us and we are saved. Lord, what we ask is that you simply open our eyes to see the need around us. We know that you've given us everything that's required for us in order to model you to the world. So help us meet 
the needs of the world one person at a time. All to your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship.